Don't Miss a Beat is a podcast series brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear that covers views from diverse constituencies within the food, beverage, and agribusiness, also known as FBA, sector. Hosted by Jonathan Havens and Kermit Nash, co-chairs of the firm's FBA group, episode guests offer various perspectives on a variety of legal, policy, and industry developments, day-to-day FBA issues, best practices, and the road ahead. Thank you for joining us for our food, beverage, and agribusiness podcast series, Don't Miss a Beat. My name is Kermit Nash, and I'm the co-chair of the Saul Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair's food, beverage, and agribusiness practice based in the firm's Minneapolis office. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Barry Chats, a partner in our Chicago office and our bankruptcy group. He focuses his practice on restructuring and bankruptcy, and among other things, serves the food, beverage, and agribusiness industry. Recently, Barry has represented agricultural-related entities and restructurings, including a large strawberry operation, dairy operation, and he serves as a post-confirmation trustee for a closed chain of grocery stores, and I could go on and on. Barry is a national thought leader on many topics, and we're pleased to have him join us on the important topic of restructuring and bankruptcy consideration for food, beverage, and agribusiness companies. Barry, we're happy that you're with us. I'm going to roll right into maybe more of a prognostication because you've seen a lot of things. How does what we're experiencing now in the fall of 2020 differ from what we experienced in 2008 and 2009? Thanks for having me, Kermit, by the way. Pleasure being here. This is different for many reasons. Obvious, the obvious reasons are that the 2008-2009 issues were economic-based only and not disease-based. The federal government was not providing the types of backstops it has provided through the first six months of COVID-19 that they provided in 20, that they failed to provide in 2008-2009. 2008-2009 was really a mortgage-based securities issue and other issues. This is across the board, across all industries, and therefore, it's a very difficult time for everybody in every marketplace. It is not just homeowners losing their homes because of allegedly false valuations. It's not just a real estate-based issue. What we are dealing with today is a broader-based crisis based upon non-economic factors that is hitting every economic industry and clearly certain sectors of the agricultural food beverage businesses differently so that's the answer to your question well it certainly feels different and seeing how different companies are reacting and the massive disruption in the supply chain in the food and agribusiness in particular i would say that uh, for most folks in the industry they've never seen anything like it but you and i were talking recently about how people look and think about bankruptcy and some of the misperceptions that are out there, that bankruptcy is just something that people do when they need to shut down their business. And that's hardly the case. And something you told me that really stuck with me that I'd like you to elaborate on for our listeners is not only the definition of what it means to be a distressed organization, because we do want to talk about the tools and protection that bankruptcy affords, but can you talk about what it means to be a distressed organization? Because it seems like that's the first analysis before thinking about What do we need to do to protect our company? Well, the classic 
definition of insolvency is the inability to pay bills when they, they become due. Every business other than like we saw today, I think I sent you something today, Kermit, on Del Monte, whose sales were through the roof because of the demands for food um, initially in the first quarter of this year. Every business has had to migrate to a different thought process because it's not clear where their cash flow is going to be and how it's going to be impacted going forward. It's a business cash flow analysis that I think is driving everyone to have to take a step back and think about where they want to be in 2021. 2022 was the historical norm. Now we are in norms where we're looking at 90-day windows so that we can determine with our clients can they survive? How can they survive? What are their sales going to be? What choices do they have to make? And can they continue to take care of their families going forward in this business model? So let's take a step back. March of 2020, things got materially different. Let's just use that language. The federal government stepped in with the payroll protection program and other programs, and lenders were given the privilege of a six-month forbearance for many of their customers. The banks were, the federal government wasn't going to say to a lender, you have to close down this business. You generally, if you could pay your bills as they came due and with the support of the PPP program, we'll leave you alone. It's now after that six-month period. For post-Labor Day 2020, what's going to happen? What every lender, what every borrower, what every financial advisor, what every lawyer is saying to their clients or customers is what you need to put together is a 13-week cash flow projection to assist in helping to manage through this process so you, the customer, you, the client, can determine is your business viable? Do you need to put in more capital? Because the banks are unlikely to lend money at this point, and it's not clear if there's going to be any new government support coming down the line. However, if a client customer can maintain through 2020, it is hoped that in 2021, new programs may appear or that there's a vaccine or something that makes business come back. Circling to the food, agriculture, beverage side, we all know what's happening to the restaurant businesses. In Chicago, you're lucky to have 25% indoor capacity, if at all, and they just laid out a new protocol for outdoor dining going forward, which in November, and you know, my friend Kermit, you live in Minnesota, I'm not sitting outside, even in a tent with heaters in November. So there are things that are going to be happening to the purveyors to, to restaurants, not in Florida, not in Texas, maybe not in California, but certainly in the Midwest, in the heartland, where lenders have supported them, but their sales projections are going to go down unless we have a vaccine and people want to go sit inside restaurants.
I'm not sure that's something I want to do, but people are making the choices that that's something they want to do. So that's kind of a long-winded circumstance for different economic management of everybody's business to help them to manage week by week, day by day, versus what was historical. You look at your business quarterly, how you doing? Maybe monthly. Now we're looking weekly or daily at cash flows. It's stressful. It creates anxiety. Everybody's worried about getting sick on top of it. It's flu season. It's really hard. When organizations are really in some state of distress, and, and I might submit that more organizations might be in distress than we realize, some may be in distress and they may not know it yet. And so we have this unique dynamic in the market now where people, to your point, are trying to determine if they're viable or not. And so one of the questions that I have is, you know, how does a company determine whether or not they're viable or not? If they feel like they can make it past that 13 week period, who do they call? What do they do? And maybe a, maybe a sub theme is when do they call you? Well, I think most of, in order to put together these projections, most businesses, it's out of their wheelhouse. So they'll hopefully be talking to their accountants. And once they put together these likely along with a 13-week cash flow statement, a balance sheet that shows what their assets and liabilities are and whether they have solvency issues and what the impact of that might be, they will likely need to talk to their lender and potentially bring in their lawyer to have a gentle person-like discussion about where they sit, whether they have capital to support this business, and what they're going to do. Because if the business is failing, and you raise this, do you go bankrupt? Bankruptcy, there are different chapters. There's a chapter available for farmers. There's a small business chapter now available in the bankruptcy under the chapter 11. There's liquidation chapter, but those are issues to be determined if we have really understanding of the viability of the business, if it's worth putting more capital into the business, how that business might be restructured. That's where I come in. But until we have the data on the operations and the commitment to those operations, whether it's an owner who's 75 years old or an owner who's 40 years old who has capital, all of those things are part of the mix. You know, one of the things that we have been seeing is that we're seeing larger agribusiness companies in the news either being acquired, filing bankruptcy. The story you sent me this morning about Del Monte, uh, seeing their sales go through the roof based on demand. You've been involved in a number of these, and I'm just wondering if you could just share some of the more unique things that you're seeing in food and agribusiness in particular. And, and, I, and I say that from the, con- from the standpoint of, I'm a consumer, so we, we want to see our products in the supply chain ending up in the grocery stores. But I'm also seeing in the sense that these are large organizations and sometimes infinitely larger than most people realize. So are you seeing some unique features that are happening in agribusiness in particular, especially in times like this? Well, we all read about small farm failures, which is a concern for supply chain issues, whether it's dairy or corn or any other type of farm operation, we're continuing to see that. 
we're also seeing consolidation in these industries. There are profits to be made in agriculture. There are great things that protect the agricultural industry, including the Perishable Commodities Act and other things that make sure those in business get paid for their goods if you're a farmer or in a distribution business. However, there are some things that are a bit disconcerting, some may say. In a recent dairy bankruptcy, the assets of that dairy were bought by the entity that sets pricing. So what is that going to mean long-term for dairy pricing going forward when the entity, it just doesn't seem to be the type of integration that uh, survives antitrust law. Those are the types of things that may be of concern in the future because we have all benefited by really markedly fair and low dairy prices. Uh, you know, a gallon of milk is still less than a gallon of gas. So are those types of things going to start to hit consumers? I think what COVID-19 has done, however, is it has helped many grocers to be able to push up prices distributors to be able to push up prices because many of those were struggling pre-COVID. I'm sure you've gone to the grocery store. I try to avoid it as much as possible because there's too many people standing too close to me. But other than that, it is markedly more expensive to buy goods in the grocery store. So I think that when these entities do file bankruptcy, it is in the same way to restructure a bad debt structure with what we're seeing mostly in the larger cases, whether it's agricultural or not, a debt to equity swap that needs to get blessed by a court in order to make it effective because often you don't get 100% of shareholders to approve or 100% of the debt to approve that swap or something like that. So the bankruptcy is being used to facilitate that debt to equity swap more than anything else these days. And it's a quick sale or that type of swap called a sale to facilitate the ongoing business operations. That's not generally what you and I see in the middle market. Bankruptcies of chapter 11 bankruptcy, the filing of a bankruptcy, if you have to go there is an expensive process. It needs the support of lenders and your trade creditors and all the parties in order to succeed. Strategically, it may be a useful tool. There are lots of tools in Chapter 12 if you're a family farmer to reset your debt, but it's an expensive process. So we can delve more into that if we wish, but I don't know that we can do that in this 20 minutes. Barry, that's a nice segue. One of the things you mentioned just a minute ago was something that a lot of people aren't aware of, and that is PACA, as well as the PSA. And PACA stands for the Perishable Agricultural Commodities Act, and the PSA stands for Packers and Stockyards Act. Most people never heard of it, don't understand how it impacts their life, but it's, it's actually something that's become increasingly important. Some stories from Florida, for example, where there were shortages in milk in, in large urban areas, but then just several miles out of town, dairy farmers were dumping milk because they couldn't get it to where it needed to go. So these log jams and supply chains were creating all sorts of problems, including in hospitality when they got shut down, suppliers were basically left with nowhere for their product to go. 
Um, you're an expert at this and you've seen this a number of times. Could you just talk about how PACA and the PSA works in context of business generally, but, but also in bankruptcy? Because I think that there's a host of people, whether it be lenders, consumers, people who are somewhere in the supply chain are unaware of it. Well, let's just, let's just focus on PACA and PASA yep. is pretty similar, but yep. uh, you know, the, the PACA Act is a generated after the Great Depression. That's pretty long ago. And that law gave growers of produce a priming right, a first payment right, basically, for anyone they sold goods to, to get paid back before anybody else. That's ahead of a lender, trade creditors, grandma who lent money, everybody. So it's a huge benefit that has now been made applicable to distributors of produce so that for a produce supplier who is selling to a restaurant or a grocer or whomever, they have a first payment right. That's a big deal because those grocers often have lenders, but it's a great thing for the protection of those producers to make sure they're going to get paid. It's another reason why I believe that there is a lot of activity in the food sector because there are these significant rights for meat packers, produce suppliers that get them paid prior to lenders. Now, not to get too much in the weeds, if I'm a bank and I'm lending to someone who's going to be buying from a produce distributor, I'm going to go to that produce distributor and talk about how those loans sit in the stack because I want to make sure if I'm the lender versus the produce supplier, I get paid first. But many times lenders do not understand where they sit in that stack of debt. So it's a great protection. It's very valuable and it's very valuable for the family farmer if it's selling through a cooperative or otherwise to know that their payment streams should not be impacted when they're selling through that co-op that should be utilizing that PACA right or that PASA right for their benefit. So that's a really nice thing, particularly in this time and rolling back to my thought process, when you're trying to determine your cash flows on your 13-week basis and if you're selling produce, it gives you a much better comfort level that your trade, your payables will be paid versus if you're an eyeglass seller selling to a distressed eyeglass company or pharmacy that sells glasses, you might not be in that kind of chain of payment. So that's, I hope, clear enough. <laughs> no, that's excellent. And and uh, as I see, we're running out of time for this podcast. I, I just want to highlight the fact that this is a intricately complex, but yet wonderful field of law, where if you're in the food, you're in the beverage and agribusiness space, it's not simple, but it's still probably the most critical part of our economy. Barry, as always, it's a pleasure. This wraps up our podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening.
listening to this episode of Don't Miss a Beat, brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear. Please be sure to subscribe to hear more podcast episodes related to developments in the food, beverage, and agriculture industry.